Thursday, March 2nd. Good to see all of you again, uh, as is our custom. Before we get into uh, the program at hand, I'm going to review um, the state and history. Um, I always find this interesting. So, so many to choose from. So I'm going to start off with, I didn't know this, in 1807, on March 2nd, 1807, Congress abolished the African slave trade. Amazing. The U.S. Congress passes an act to prohibit the importation of slaves into any port or place within the jurisdiction of the United States from any foreign kingdom, place, or country. Wow. 1807. On a lighter note, uh, in 1904, Theodore Geisel, better known to the world as Dr. Seuss, the author and illustrator of such books, children's books as A Cat in the Hat, and Green Eggs and Ham is born in Springfield, Massachusetts on March 2nd, 1904. I'm not mistaken. I think some of those books are, are considered not to be politically correct anymore. Anyway, that was 1904. And then for all you sports fans out there, I had to pick this one. Um, probably one of the greatest athletic accomplishments ever. On March 2nd, 1962, Philadelphia Warriors centered Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in a game against the New York Knicks during a home game. It was actually played, though, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. It was the first time that a player had scored 100 points. The previous record uh, was 78, been set by Chamberlain in the prior prior season. So those are your three dates from history. I'm sure we could have, there are many other worthy ones, but those are the ones I selected. any event, uh, it's great to have uh, Larry um, Jettelow back with us. Larry is a dear friend. I've known him for, oh my gosh, I think going on uh, almost 30 years, at least 25 years. Larry, what year, what, what year did we first meet? Do you recall? It was sometime in the in the mid-90s, I think. It was, it was 95. 95. There you go. Time flies and you're having fun. Larry uh, is a, a citizen of the world. Uh, he's a proprietor of TIS Group. Um, always has really, really interesting insights particularly on uh, the geopolitical sphere, um, things that are going outside the U.S. Larry's um, had more than his fair share of uh, outsized predictions that have come to pass. And so I, whatever, whenever Larry speaks, uh, I, I, take, I, I take good notes. Anyway, Larry, it might be, uh, might be useful just to start off. Um, I know you, we were in the space together. It was spring last year. It's been a while. There was a lot of clamoring for you to come back, so I'm glad you're back with us. And by the way, Larry, um, the uh, slides uh, that we spoke about are up in the nest. Um, for those that care, I think we put up about eight slides there. But Larry, maybe just be useful, just uh, explain to folks your background and what exactly is uh, TIS Group. And I think Larry wants to speak for, I don't know, 20, 20 minutes or plus. There's so much to cover, but without further ado, Larry, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks, George. Uh, it's good to be back again. Thank you for having me. Um, well, it's been about 45 years in the business for me, and it's I've covered a lot of ground um, in terms of different markets. I've traded bonds, commodities, was director of research for a, a very well-known and successful independent research firm for a number of years. Then I switched to the buy side, <clears throat> moved to Zurich, and worked at a major Swiss bank as the chief strategist in the institutional unit. Came back to the States, um, uh, 
bought a small part of a bank here in the Twin Cities and ran the advisory, so I was running money for five years there of, of all types, multi-asset, U.S. equities, bonds, you name it. And then in uh, 95, uh, we started this company, TIS Group. And uh, so we've been in, in business now 27 years, and what we provide is to primarily institutions, and, and about half of our business is outside the states, uh, strategy advice, and that can cover uh, equities, bonds, commodities, rates, Fed, central banks, uh, currencies, and increasingly, we, we you know, we're, our, our job is to help people manage risk, but also to make money. And as, the, you know, as times change and the world changes, uh, we've built up a large, I think, a, a reasonably large number of contacts globally who give us very, help us give very good insights to our clients about what's coming next. And I guess that's how I describe it, George, is we're interested in what's coming next and what the markets haven't priced. So that's what we do. Terrific. So um, with that, I mean, Larry, we always joke about uh, all the news that's fit to print or not fit to print. Uh, don't want to scare the women and children sometimes, but um, maybe uh, just launch into what's sort of top of mind for you. Um, what's in the market, what's not on the market. Uh, have at it. So it's open mic. The floor is yours. <laughs> Thanks, George. Well, I think if there's one or two themes that run through how we're thinking about markets now, uh, one theme would be inflation uh, <clears throat> and all the permutations of that and where it's going to come from. And then secondly, where are the unpriced uh, topics? What are the things that can move the markets over the next, not just one year, but over a, a very long period of time? Uh, because we have, we have a very broad range of clients. Some of them have to invest on a five to 10 year time frame, or others are day traders and we have everything in between. So Maybe with uh, with that, I just would start uh, just a brief discussion on uh, inflation, the Fed rates and where we think that's going, and then dive off into the swans, because we think there's an unusual number of black swans that are circling here. And usually markets can get away with one or two swans, but <laughs> there seems to be a flock right now. And I think the, the, the risks are rising here that one of them hits. And I want to just kind of bullet point through those, and then, then we can open up to questions. So on the inflation side, um, there is a graph up there. It's, it's actually the first page, which represents how we think about inflation in this cycle in the States. And it's not terribly different than what happened to us in the 60s and 70s. But I think this time it's going to be compressed. We're not going to have three peaks. We're going to have two. Um, and this time, the shift back to monetary policy, which we did in 79 and 80 to break the back of inflation, is going to come quicker. This isn't going to take seven to 10 years. And the reason it's not is we simply have a, uh, and I'll talk about this in a second, we have a debt buildup going on in the states uh, at the sovereign level that is simply unsustainable. And those are not my words, those are the words of a number of people in government. So the wars, which I'll address just very briefly, the boom in oil, which I think is still coming. Bretton Woods, I think, is probably the single most important risk uh, that's lurking out there. And I it not, you can't call it Bretton Woods now, but what Bretton Woods represented was a change in the currency system at the time and uh, between 71 and 73. I think the number one risk right now to the U.S. is de-dollarization. It's the loss of the, uh, reserve currency status by the dollar. And I, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit as well. If that happens, then I'm, I'm fairly certain or even comes close. I'm, I'm pretty certain that the inflation rate that we're seeing now is going to look um, pretty good compared to what we could have later on. 
and it actually fits with some of the work we do in uh, uh, the rate markets in that uh, we believe the 10-year, excuse me, uh, yeah, the 10-year uh, treasury will trade up to about 10% uh, in this cycle. And uh, the two-year, which is the other part of the curve we watch quite closely, is going to have to trade at least a couple hundred pips over CPI in order to uh, bring it to heel. Uh, we're not Larry, in the camp. Larry, just stop, to... for a, stop for a second. I just want to make sure I heard that right and everybody else heard that right. You're saying the 10 year is going to go to 10%. Is that what you said? Yes. In this and, 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 and the two years going to go to a couple hundred bips over inflation. So whereas yes. I know you've, you've come up with different uh, measures of inflation. So is that high single digits or double digits already for you um, uh, in terms of where you think two year goes to? Well, we should all pray we don't use the shadow stats number because they're CPI number 16. All right. Okay. So then we'd be at eight. No, I'm not using that. I'm using about a six to eight number on CPI. Okay. Right. So we'll be up around eight Got to it. 10. Okay. Yeah. Keep going. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, if you take a look at pages, let's talk about inflation a bit and, and rates and what the Fed can or cannot do about this. And this is, let's skip page three. I think that's, that's in there. Yeah, the second page. The page that says CPI. Um, is not by graph. It belongs to uh, Andy Addison, but it was a very, it was a terrific technical call on the burst in inflation that we've just had this year. And I don't, you know, we're at resistance now. Uh, we're at the at the point in the CPI cycle where uh, we it should back off some, uh, primarily due to housing and and the weakness that's developing in the auto market. But there are other things, and I think the two main thrusts I think here that will be a continue to be a problem for inflation is one, I think the disinflation picture that you see on that graph, which started in roughly 1980 through last year, uh, in good part could be explained by globalization. In fact, uh, Greenspan said that in 2005 in a speech that it was probably the most underrated uh, part of the, dis the, uh, uh, the disinflation story was globalization. Well, now we're reversing that process. And this deglobalization not only refers to production costs, potentially rising because we're, the U.S. is shifting production, or will be, or should be, probably both, away from China to higher cost areas. This is going to count, this is where de-dollarization de uh, becomes extremely important because that is, a, in a way, a deglobalization of capital. The cost of capital is going up. It's going to continue to go up. The days of free money are over. And I don't think that... Um, so prices are going to have to rise here. Companies are going to have to uh, reflect that in what they charge. And, and I don't think that's fully priced yet. And we've got other things we could talk about, like wages and immigration patterns and what the Labor Department in the States saw many, you know, 10 years ago in terms of the long-term labor shortage in the States. But basically, my, uh, my feeling is that we're going to be up in this uh, very sticky inflation area, which the Atlanta Fed is showing us. Um, is going to be with us, I think, for quite some time. I'm, I'm not in the camp. We're going back to 2%. Now, if that's the case, then the Fed, um, if you want to look at uh, the next, uh, next graph, I think, says U.S. bond dealers inventory. It raises a huge issue for the Fed and the Treasury because what's, what they're running into now is uh, not enough buyers uh, for Treasuries. I didn't stick a graph in here of the treasury table we usually have, which shows that it appears, uh, and, I, and there are concerns, conflicting data on this, to be fair, that foreigners may have been um, 
net sellers last year, uh, excuse me, the prior year of uh, treasuries. There's some suggestion they might have actually rejoined the buy side here, but the, po the point is I'm just going to read you two lines here from the CBO that gives you, you know, gives us all an idea of the scale of the problem. This is what the CBO said, uh, actually in May of last year. Public debt in the U.S. is expected to increase 66% from $24.2 trillion at the end of 2022 to $40 trillion at the end of 2032. So that's just 10 years. And then they said, according to the CBO's projections, interest payments would total around $66 trillion over the next 30 years and would take up nearly 40% of all federal revenues by 2052. Interest costs could become the largest single program over the next few decades, surpassing defense spending in 29, Medicare in 46, and Social Security in 49. Now, I'm old enough, I'm not going to see the latter two kind of categories. But that's not the point. The point is the problem is going to show up now. And, and, unless, and there seems to be no, little to no sign here in the U.S. government that they're, they're willing to, to get spending under control. So they have to find buyers. And they don't have them. This, this graph I'm showing you here is uh, the level of uh, the primary dealers in the Treasury market. They're, they're down around $280 billion now. There could be room uh, to you know, basically entice or force the banks to do that. But it's rates and it's, a, it's the NIMS that they need to do this. They need a spread. Um, or, or they're just not going to become or, or become new buyers. So the second possibility is we try and entice foreigners into the market, which also suggests higher rates. Or we could change legislation. I'm giving you solutions here and change the laws and actually force pension funds or 401k plans, for instance, to buy a specific percentage or own a specific percentage of their accounts in treasury debt. Now, this happens in Europe. There are required levels that uh, pension funds, for, for instance, have to own in their own sovereign bonds. And the last resort, of course, is the Fed itself. They go back to a QE. So, but they're not there yet. Uh, none of those things have happened yet. In fact, you know, the, the, uh, the Fed's going the opposite direction. Now, if de-dollarization, which I'm, I'm gonna, going to address here just very briefly, occurs, in other words, there are foreign countries now that are actively and openly promoting the use of alternative currencies instead of using dollars to pay for their uh, imports. That becomes uh, more the norm. And China's doing this. China's talking about it openly. They've been talking about it openly at least since 2015. We know that there are Gulf Cooperation Council countries in uh, the Persian Gulf that are actively looking at how to develop a currency to uh, become an alternative to the dollar so that they can accept uh, payment in uh, a currency of their own design and of their own control. The SCCO countries, the Shanghai Cooperation Council countries, would like to have their own currency, perhaps alongside China, in order to price their exports, which are primarily, or be paid next, uh, for their exports, are primarily metals. So all, all of these are what I would describe as anti-dollar uh, systems. And this, this I, th I think, is actually the number one threat to the United States economy. Because if we were to lose reserve currency status, then our ability to, U.S. ability, to pay for our imports, to print our way out of recessions, to print our way out of depressions, to fight wars and simply print the money and outlast the other side. Most wars do end with one side or the other running out of money. Um, all of that could go away. And the level of inflation that we could be 
uh, facing, I think, would simply be politically unpalatable. The loss of standard of living in the U.S. Uh, it would not work in the U.S. system. So, to me, how this financing is handled is crucial, and how the de-dollarization issue is handled. And so, when I said that, and and in some of the systems you Hey, Larry, Larry, are you moving around a little bit? This, the uh, Your speech is getting a little bit crazy on us. You're like in the matrix. Can you hear me, Larry? Yep, I can hear you. Yeah, I don't know if you were moving around, but the last 10 seconds or so, we lost you. Go ahead. Okay, I'll, I'll hold it still here. Sure. So, so um, well, long-term long term rates, as I said, we, we think next cycle they go to 10 on the 10-year. And rates have started a secular rise in the U.S. That's one of our conclusions. So if I move to the next slide, which just says war cycles, one of the main reasons for this, um, and this is um, a graph we took from gold and silver trader, but we're in sync with them. And that is that we're in the next two or three years that not just the states, but the world is um, in terms of the propensity to go to war is in a very high risk area. And wars are inflationary. They're unusually inflationary. And so what, I, what I'd like to do the next, the rest of the you know, time I speak here, just talk you through three different black swans, all that are geopolitical, all are inflationary. Uh, and, and I think our, this may be the time when at least one of them and perhaps two of them hit. So if we, if you take a look at the, uh, it's, it's just a, uh, it's not a graph, it's actually just some bullet points that is titled war in Ukraine. So we'll do, we'll talk about Ukraine, Middle East and China. Um, in the Ukraine, the top, the top line says, um, uh, Putin, uh, in terms of the war, Putin cannot quit and NATO doesn't want to. Now, that actually came from a European. And the, the reasoning is that Putin really can't quit. He can't withdraw. He has to save face. He has, I think, as much problem with his own internal uh, issues that he does, that he does in his front. NATO doesn't want to because for NATO, this is the, uh, it, not only giving them a reason for uh, being, um, they are the only credible defense system for Europe. And in fact, you, you see this now with Macron who's running around Europe um, trying to set up an air defense system for the EU, which simply doesn't exist outside of NATO. So there's a so that's one piece. The second piece to Ukraine, I think, which is germane to the US is, uh, and there's a lot of, dis I get a lot of pushback about this, but if you watch what's going on, uh, there are stories around that Macron from France and Scholz from Germany are trying to arrange a peace deal. The Chinese just put out their version of a peace deal. The two sides, that, uh, two, two pieces to the puzzle that don't seem to want one are Ukraine, Zelensky, and the U.S. And the question has come up, why the U.S.? Why would the U.S. not want a peace deal? And I can think of two reasons. One of them is that it is, it is beneficial to the U.S. economy. Wars are good for the U.S. economy. Now, they're also inflationary. But they will allow, I think, politically, the one bit of spending in the U.S. now that the House has changed um, uh, control and the Appropriations Committee is controlled by Republicans. This may be the one type of major spending in front of the 24 election that could go through. The other reason I think it's possibly politically uh, driven is, as you know, you know, most of them, I'm sure, on the call are Americans. Uh, presidents who win wars uh, tend to continue to be presidents. It's politically very popular. There was one exception to that, 
you know, the first George Bush won the initial Gulf War and he had a 90% approval rating, but he lost the next year. So I, I think this one's got this. There's a real risk that this one goes off the rails here. Um, I, the Europeans I've talked to, some of them have told me that basically the Soviet strategy is to uh, turn Ukraine into the modern day version of Carthage. You just plow it up. And I think we're going to see some new technologies there as well being used in the military side, which are very interesting in terms of drones. So that's number one. The next risk is in the Middle East, which I have a graph, or not a graph, it's actually a map we've used before. And this is the risk to oil, but also it's, it's one of the seeds of de-dollarization is those countries around the Persian Gulf. Um, there is the unwritten story here is in Iran. The, I don't think the media has paid enough attention to this because the civil war there has reached the point where we're told that parts of the Iranian army are simply walking out of their camps and going home. Uh, the economy is so bad now in Iran, uh, their, their FX market has just collapsed, the currency has collapsed. The inflation rate is, I think it's close to 100% if it's not higher now. And politically, the uh, leaders of that country, I think, are probably looking for a way to deflect uh, the public's uh, problems away from them. And so I've, in, we have uh, a colleague who actually lives in Dubai, and what he continues to tell me is that um, there is a great deal of concern now about, and it's popping up in public now, the amount of an enriched fizzle material that the Iranians have completed. I think it's 84% now. And they don't have the technology, we don't think, we don't know for sure, but we don't think they can make a bomb, but they have the material which, which enables them to do so. Um, and they can buy the missiles, uh, the, the, the delivery systems, if they, if they choose to, from a couple other countries. So this one's getting too close. And the, the concern I have is two. One is that the Israelis won't wait and that they will take the risk out, whether the United States agrees or not. And the second risk, I think, is, is once again, it's this de-dollarization move that is now emerging in those GCC countries, Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, uh, the Saudis, even the Iranians, I understand, are in the talks, uh, the UAE, Dubai, Abu Dhabi. And one of the interesting sidelights to this is they are very interested in owning gold, and they're accumulating gold specifically to help uh, buttress the value of that currency, which tells you something about where they think, I guess, inflation is going. The third piece, and then I'll, I'll stop and we can start taking questions, George, is China. And there's a slide there, but it doesn't do justice at all to what's going on there. It's, I'm just going to read a couple of lines, which I put in our daily message the other day. This came from the foreign ministry of, of China about a week ago. <clears throat> and it's a piece they titled U.S. Hegemony and Its Perils. Now, this is their words. Um, and they, they quote five different categories of U.S. hegemony that's a problem. They said political hegemony, throwing its weight around, uh, throwing the throwing its weight around, military hegemony, wanton use of force, economic hegemony, looting and exploitation, technological hegemony, monopoly and suppression, and cultural hegemony, spreading false narratives. And, you know, I, I could maybe just leave, leave you with one section here. I'll just take a look at the economic section for a moment. It gives you a flavor for what they're talking about. This is the, the uh, sort of summary statement where they talk about America's economic hegemony. They said America's economic and financial hegemony has become a geopolitical weapon. Now, this is their view. And then they say, so far, the United States has 
or has imposed economic sanctions on nearly 40 countries across the world, including Cuba, China, Russia, the, uh, North Korea, Iran, and Venezuela. Um, and then there's a taunt and the rest of it, which I won't repeat. But my point in reading this to you is this is how they see it. And I think it's always really important to understand the guy on the other side and how he's thinking about us and what he might be willing to do um, in case he thinks he's an agreed party or for survival, what they will do. So what I think is coming is a form of capital controls where the U.S. begins to control the amount of outflow of dollars to China. And you're seeing bits and pieces of it now. If you looked, you know, if you saw on, I think it was Monday night, this bipartisan committee that the House has on China, this is exactly where they're going to go. There's legislation that's going to come out of the Senate that they're writing. Uh, and, and it's the CHIPS Act, which we had uh, last year, I think is just the beginning of what essentially will be a, an attempt by the U.S. to stop the flow of dollars for, for very specific reasons at the beginning. So any company that's involved with the Chinese military or involved with AI or biotechnology or has a military application, you know, any anything along those lines, I think, will uh, come under sanction or some kind of um, U.S. blockage. Uh, this will affect a lot of U.S. companies. Um, if you look, if you look at GM, Tesla, and the operations they have there uh, in China, Apple, um, the all the all the big banks, the financial firms, the pharma firms, um, and it's not just us because I'm pretty sure that the U.S. probably has already. Uh, approached our allies in the region uh, to make sure that they don't circumvent what kind of controls the U.S. is going to try and impose now on China. So their companies will be affected as well. So the Japanese companies, for instance, the tech companies there, the Japanese auto companies, uh, there's, there's going to be a broad swath of uh, markets and economies here that are going to be affected by this. And not to end on a downer, George, and turn it over to you, but the last time I remember studying anything that looks remotely close to this was what the United States did in 1940 to Japan when we cut off oil imports to them, uh, oil exports into Japan. And the result was they felt that they had no choice uh, but to go to war. Wow. Wow. Uh, i got to pour myself a stiff drink. So I don't know where to begin with that. Um, let's start with oil, actually. Um, what does this all mean to you with respect to uh, energy prices, Larry? Well, in the States, um, you're starting, and Canada, you're starting to see the first signs here of the lows coming in because you're, uh, there was an, a buyout the other day, Baytex is buying uh, Ranger Oil. I'm not so sure this is meaningful for gas yet, the nat gas price. I, that, I was just down in Texas about three weeks ago, and it just seems to me we could go another year with just too much supply coming on all of a sudden. Um, so I'm not really a gas buyer here. I think oil and heavy oil, though, could they may be bottoming here. And for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, as long as China does grow 4 or 5% this year, the demand for oil from China is basically going to remove the available supply. And the only available supply of any globally of any size that's above ground is in the Middle East, yeah, specifically in Saudi. And the Saudis have already <laughs> staked out their claim last year when the U.S. asked them to increase production, and they basically not only didn't increase production, they cut it. And from what I understand, they cut it even more than the Russians thought they would. So, um, and you see those signs. You know, you see there's a there's been a big drop now in rig count in the States. 
um, as long as we don't go in recession, and I don't think we will this year. I'm in minority there, but I, I don't think we will. And demand for stays up in the U.S. and China comes online. Um, I think we'll go uh, WTI. I think we'll trade back toward 100 bucks this year. And the oil stocks are they're low. They're low as a percentage of the S&P. They're low in terms of P's. They're low in terms of cash flows. You can find a lot of companies in that sector that have very nice metrics. Wow. Um, all right. Let's let's bring uh, Baron into the conversation. Baron's always got something interesting to say. Baron, uh, please unmute yourself. What's on your mind, my friend? Hello, George. Hello, Larry. Um, so as you remember, George, when we first met back in January, February of 2022, um, you know, I, I, I actually said some of this could happen. And I didn't think it would, but it, it, it's been transitioning in this way. So as I posted in the nest a couple of things that I, um, that I bookmarked over time, one of which is the, the, the de-dollarization of China um, and the increase of the yuan. Another is the AI fuel, you know, new global superpowers arms race. This, as I told you a long time ago, I, started, I realized that this war has become, was more about the supply of resources, not resources in wheat like we were distracted by, but actually by neon and neon supply comes, well, metals as well, like Larry was saying, but neon comes from Odessa and it's a byproduct of the metal industry. And it is predominantly, it was 73% of the actual world supply coming out of Odessa. It is now over 90%. And it, it's interesting that Google actually changed that and uh, the resources that supported that. Larry, I have a question for you based on your summary. I couldn't summarize it better myself. And George has heard me in an echo chamber like this, you know, saying the same things you did just now. And people in the room that follow, that follow me in other groups hear me say the same thing on a regular basis, leading us all the way into CBDCs and the utility of those, which is going to be implemented, ironically, between May and June of this year, Per the Fed, they were not supposed to happen, but they are all of a sudden going to happen between May and June, just a month or a month and a half before the Saudi Arabia gets gets included into BRICS, and that will be the nail in the coffin on the dollar because that is the final final hurrah for for China to declare victory against the dollar. So, Larry, what is your opinion on the implementation of the CBDCs uh, in between now and then? Something's got to happen. Some events have to happen. People are not going to willingly accept a digital currency and give up their physical money. So if they were to be incentivized, like they did in the past, or, or they took away large bills, that they did the $1,000 bill and the $500 bill, blaming it on, you know, oh, well, this is for nefarious purposes. We'll just get rid of these. No big deal. Mm -hmm. You don't need those. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility that they may get rid of hundreds and fifties, et cetera, and do this in a slow transition where they get us used to it and get rid of change. But there's this other alternative. In the current environment, it seems more likely, which is a crash, a fear event. And they're going to say, well, we got your back. We're going to protect you, but you have to go into the digital dollar. What are your thoughts, Larry? Mm -hmm. Well, that would be a lot more efficient than the way they did it during uh, the COVID period, wasn't it? <coughs> when they were sending out, excuse me, sending out checks, which may or may not arrive. It also gives them greater control over who gets the money. Um, well, there's a lot of PPP money that just disappeared, wasn't there? So, I I don't I don't dismiss anything you've just said. Um, I do think the some of this is actually out of their control. Uh, I, speaking of the the 
uh, our country. I, I, I think you're right there driving us toward a CBDC. They wouldn't have uh, front-ended the introduction. Uh, the Fed didn't study that, I don't think, even a year. Maybe they did a little longer than that, but it seems to be a very very fast uh, uh, fast track here they're following. So uh, normally it would have to be some kind of a uh, financial event. Uh, I didn't say anything about cyber. Um, and uh, there's a reason for that. But what I would say is uh, pay attention to that space because I, uh, there's just a lot of activity right now. I'm, I'm on the, I'm involved in a cyber company as a shareholder and a board member, but you know, in it's a private company, but you know, we, we see things, we're in the industry and, um, I don't think the next one is, uh, a pandemic type, uh, healthcare problem. I think the next major problem is going to be a cyber problem. And, uh, that would be, I think the, uh, probably an effective trigger to usher in uh, a substitute currency, which is what this is. Larry, so the, given that information, I'm glad you segued to that because what we, what you probably are alluding to without saying the events are the series of events that we've witnessed that haven't been in the media, haven't been discussed in the media. And so they were following balloons, which are distractions historically, <laughs> both World War One, World War Two, balloons and UFOs were, were distractions prior to the war. Mm-hmm. So what you're probably alluding to is the Southwest Airlines FAA shut down for half of a day. Bank of America Zell argument. The stock market crash at Open, uh, basically, which they called, you know, they blamed it on some backup program. But there's a series of this happening all over the board. There's outages. It's it's going all over the place. Even today, Schwab called me today and told me that they're 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 seeing some activity on cards. Nobody had access to any of my cards. It's never been out there. It's a sock drawer card in a safe. But they said that they've been they've been getting hit basically, and it's coming out of countries like Brazil, for example. No, this is just one example. But are you referring to cyber attacks in that fashion? Because there was uh, someone told me, someone else told me that I um, that does pay attention, but I don't know how accurate this is. That there was talks about uh, an attack on Wall Street to shut it down for a period a period of days, which would then you know just end everything, you know, just uh, for a period at least a pause. But let me know your thoughts. Well, that may do it. Um, uh, you know, alongside of what you're describing, what's obvious to everybody, I think, is uh, if anybody who grew up in the Cold War, and this did happen in the Cold War, we know this now, was that uh, uh, Russia and her allies had a reasonable number of people who were living in this country who committed uh, sabotage. And if you just look around here, you know, I, it's even making the magazines next to the cash registers at, at uh, you know, the drugstores I go to, uh, which are the source of all wisdom, because there's so many food processing plants going up in smokes, train accidents, uh, uh, refineries catching fire. I mean, there's just too many of these things. Yeah. And these are the events, by the way, that they're not actually describing the media. It's things yeah, exactly. that they're not covering that you should right. be watching for. The things yes. they're talking about, you ignore. Yeah. Yes. So back. Hey, Larry, anything you care to volunteer uh, uh, discuss about the uh, about the balloons? I have an opinion. The opinion is that what that was was designed to do two things. They wanted to see when we would detect them, which we did quite easily. And they wanted to see what we would do to mitigate them. But do you th- I mean, had these are these balloons, best, best you can tell, they've been up there for... This, this was a relatively new thing, or they've been up there forever. We were just asleep at the wheel, or 
do you have any perspective on that, that you care to share or that best best discussed offline no i i think that's that's uh that's enough all right that's fair all right let's bring it back to markets um so you know what's an investor to do uh there you as you said it's not just one black swan you've got a whole flock of them flying around up there so um how does that inform you uh, what, 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 what advice would you give to folks how are you yeah. positioned yeah um well i think it's a good time to hold more cash than usual and i i think you know what i always said is if you use the s&p this year i think basically it's in a range between 42 or 4300 down to 3500 and if one of these things hits and 35 is breached you know i don't know what the number could be it could be 3 thousand it could be lower i don't know but i think the the balance of risks here to quote what fed people often say is to the downside now and so how do you preserve capital in an in a, in a at best a trading range market equity market where the cost of capital is rising so i don't want to own bonds if anything i'd want to be short bonds uh, i do want to own cash uh, or a very short duration because i think i'm probably going to benefit there and I want to find ways to benefit from what I'm describing. Um, and it seems to me that I don't know when it'll happen, but I think when gold moves, it's going to move very quickly and uh, you're going to have a very large move. So not just the bullion, but the miners, the, the, the gold, the precious metals miners are trading at cash flow yields now that are the highest in many, many years. It's, it's one way to participate. So that's, that's a direct way to own money. Gold is still money in parts of the world, and I think it will trade as money. Um, a second thing to do, if you're very, especially if you're a large institution, but you don't have to be, is go where they're not. And where they're not right now, I think, is in Japan. Uh, more and more, we've been, uh, you know, when we do our meetings with the clients, uh, we listen very carefully, uh, and we keep track of not just what they're asking us, but also what they're not asking us. And we have had almost no questions about Japan now for over a year. And yet that market, uh, the currency alone, the yen, is, is at least 30% undervalued on a PPP basis uh, relative to the dollar. And the market itself, the equity market itself, is very cheap. And uh, I, what, what, so what would happen if the worst occurs and we have a cyber event and U.S. markets are shut down, blah, blah. Uh, one of the things I think that would happen is Japanese institutions would bring their money home. And when they do this, when they've done it in the past, the yen has strengthened very quickly. And, and I think there, too, you have one other thing at play, which I think helps, which they have not had for many years. And that is they have a yield curve that's beginning to um, steepen just a little bit. So for the banks in Japan, this, this is like, whoa, we're back in business. <laughs> and look at the bank charts. Look at Sumitomo Mitsui Financial or Mitsubishi UFJ. I mean, those stocks are really beginning to move because their net interest margins are finally widening out. And I, and, you know, institutions, there's so much capital still around that they have to go someplace. <coughs> and if it's, uh, excuse me, if, you know, if, if Wall Street becomes unattractive for, you know, some reasonable period of time for any of these reasons, I, I think Japan could be one of the, uh, the catch basins for that, for that flow. In the bigger scheme of things, um, many of, suggested that the U.S. is now beginning a period of underperformance vis-a-vis other global markets, whereas it, you know, had handily outpaced other markets for many years. Do you concur with that uh, view? Yeah, I do. 
I mean, I, I remember, as you do, back in, in about 1990, I think Japan was, what, about 50, 60 percent of the global index, and it went to 10. And uh, I think now the U.S. is, I don't know, we're in the 40s, I think, maybe still around 50. We're too high. We're too much of the global index. And I, I think for a number of reasons, the growth in the world, is, as I see it, is the big growth in the world is actually going to be in the Middle East and across Central Asia. Right. And that's that's where I think you'll get the largest reweighting actually to the to the upside, and in any country where they are large, uh, our economies are are commodity based. I think that's the other piece here that could be could do quite well. Not, not to put words in your mouth, but I think David Einhorn yesterday, the day before, made some comment. It was it was in the popular press to the effect I think he was bearish on stocks but bullish on inflation. Uh, mm-hmm. does, that, does that resonate with you? Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly where we are. I, I wish we weren't because this is going to hurt. Um, so, is, so you want to own stocks that have pricing power? I imagine which plays into your energy is as well. Yeah. No, exactly. Anybody that's who who has an automatic price increase because the product goes up, <laughs> and then that creates inflation. That's what you want to own, and that's obviously energy. That they were, you know, late seventies when I started, they were actually quite good investments. Got it. And would it also apply to other commodities like you know metals and mining? Should not not universally, um, but I think that's generally true. Um, the other kind of commodity group that's more difficult to play, but I think it's coming is food. I mean, not I'm not pitching stocks or anything, but I'm just observing, you know, that um, if if what I believe is going to happen, unfortunately, in Ukraine happens. Uh, the supply of food coming out of there. In fact, we've heard that the farmers in Ukraine, in many cases, can't get loans to to do their uh, spring planting. Well, <laughs> I wonder why. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I just think that uh, uh, fertilizer companies, for instance, uh, take, like look look at Mosaic. It's a local company here, which I do watch because it is local, and they're down, and I don't understand why. Right, um, Barrett, do you have follow up? Yeah, so about the gold. Um, so, Larry, I'm, I'm currently watching the dollar because the dollar is the, the Fed's best friend right now. If the dollar becomes a wrecking ball again, it, you know, it doesn't work out for their friends, the other central banks, which they made agreements last year to more cooperate with after the shenanigans that they all went through. However, the dollar is making a rebound. Now, how big of a rebound that makes, obviously, is a uh, can, you know, is inverse to the to gold, for example. So I'm currently doing the same as what you just said, which is to watch the dollar, see how big of a bounce it makes, see a confirmation before even touching gold myself. But the um, but for that, sometime between now and when the Saudis go into BRICS, that is when they're going to, that China is supposed to be announcing what that currency is for BRICS, China and joint with you know Russia, for example, at that meeting. So sometime between now and then would be the ideal time to get that gold. Because I believe, just like you do, gold is going to, you know, take a massive spike. It's just win. And how much of a, how much control the Fed has or whatever, the, let's just say the market has to uh, let the dollar run up to continue the inflation fight um, before it goes into the recession trade eventually where gold will make it soar. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can maybe just add one little bit of color to what you just said. The, um, uh, I'm, I'm involved in a, uh, a gold producing company to be in Australia, developmental, but we'll be mining gold this year. 
So I've learned a lot about uh, who's buying and selling gold as a result because we, we were looking for capital last year. And one of the things I ran into was I was, I was very uh, surprised by how active uh, some of these governments are in the Middle East trying to find gold to buy it in large blocks. And uh, they, some of them, at least one of them, has set up a separate company to do just that. And they've been buying African gold, but only through the African governments, because <laughs> it can be difficult uh, just trying to deal directly with the miners there. But they're buying large blocks. They're, they're doing it, they told us, is to, uh, when the currency becomes realigned, uh, they think it's going to have a gold content to it. They don't know how much. But um, it's interesting. They're not buying it for, for reasons uh, tied to inflation. In, in a sense, they do, but it's really not. They they want that currency to be stable, and this is this well, is one of the ways they Larry, think they're going to do it. Yeah, Larry, what you just said is actually the, the exact thing I've been hearing from somebody that I know that is currently in Europe and currently goes to Africa and is in the gold trading business, and he does trade to the Middle East with gold. He's actually sent me videos of like rooms full of gold bars it's insane um and i was you know hesitant to buy into that but i've actually seen some uh some pieces on it about it and then hearing it from you has actually been uh interesting that's great let's move on uh o'hare good to see you um you have a question for larry uh, what's on your mind o'hare o'hare can you unmute yourself yeah, you sorry go. about that yeah hey guys uh hey. yeah no i just uh i'm liking what i'm hearing from larry that's fantastic um I was glad that he brought up the the phosphorus and the, and the food uh, commodity related uh, uh, stocks because I think that's going to be a that's that's one that's not really talked about too much on Twitter or anywhere. I haven't really seen it talked about on CNBC or Bloomberg or anything like that. So that's uh, that's I think an area that I think people should take a look at because there's a lot of good good things happening there, notwithstanding the the situation in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your mosaics, your nutrients, your potash, you know, all, all, all the former potash, your, you know, your, your phosphorus, um, you know, uh, fertilizer stocks. I mean, all those things are, you know, very interesting here. Even though prices have come down, I think, you know, they're at a point now where I think they're, if you hadn't, uh, if you hadn't had a chance to get in them, I think, uh, you know, they're good investments long term anywhere. If you don't, if you have a two or three year time horizon, I think these are good buys. Yeah, you know, here they the stocks were doing really well for a while, mm-hmm. and they and they had a big correction. What was the cause of that? Well, correction? it's the, the underlying price of the commodities. You know, the phosphorus, nitrogen, all that stuff just kind of dumped. You know, gas. You know, net gas. All this stuff just kind of all you know took it all down together. Got it. So now we're back to a better entry point. Interesting. So uh, you 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 like the the ag theme here? I love ags. Yeah, we we actually like uh, we like that very much. Um, we've been in it for quite a while, and uh, we you know when there's uh, when there's an opportunity to buy more, we pick up more because we just uh, we just you know these things are long terms you know long term stories. This you know these aren't trades; these are investments. So you know a lot of these companies are are very well positioned uh, going forward. So I agree with Larry. I think that the food anything related with food is 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 a good uh, is a good theme. Even some of the food stocks themselves, you know, like. Uh, I think is, is, is a good area. You know, a lot of people talk about, uh, you know, this, you know, some of these staples names being, you know, you know, kind of overpriced, but the reality is, you know, a lot of these companies, um, even the ones that are trading on multiples that you haven't seen in, in a long, long time, uh, they're generating a lot of cash, 
you know, and there's not that many of them around. There's been a lot of consolidation over the last 20 years in the consumer staple space. So I think though that space also is a good one to look at. And I agree with Larry yeah. about the gold mining stocks, gold, silver, platinum, palladium, all those stocks. I think that's a great area. If there is a dislocation, I completely agree with them. I think gold isn't going to grind higher. Gold's just going to gap higher one of these days. I've said this many times. I'm, one day I'm going to come in and I'm going to pick up the paper in the morning and it's gold's going to be, you know, 2500 an ounce. It'll just move three, $400 an ounce. Just It'll just gap, you know. Got it. Um, do you, uh, George? Can I ask O'Hara a question? Yeah. Hey O'Hara, did uh, do you watch uh, Deer and, and kind of the equipment stocks? Uh, we do, yeah. Yep. But what do you think? There's there are some that uh, you know. Actually, it's interesting. Some of them have now. When we run our screen, some of these things have started to come in um, into our kind of purview. So we have a pretty tight uh, kind of process. And uh, some of these names have started to kind of come in. They, they were a lot of these names were expensive for a while, you know, as you know. So, yeah. Um, but, but, yeah. but I think, again, going along with the ag theme, I think there's some of these names that are starting to look, you know, pretty interesting. I think the industrial space in general, materials in general are good places to be. Um, as you mentioned, with high inflation, sticky inflation, I think uh, those are the areas I would, you know, I, I know a lot of people are infatuated with banks and financials. I, I, I would tend to stay away. I mean, we, we don't own any. Um, our exposure to financials is through insurance companies, reinsurance companies. So, um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I do think that that area is very interesting. Hey Larry, let me ask you, as you, uh, as, as you're out in the hinterland in the, in the Midwest and, uh, you've got close ties to, uh, the farm belt, um, over the years, you've always had some interesting insights. What are your, what, what are your farming brethren telling you out in the Midwest, Larry? <laughs> well, they made a lot of money last year. That's why I asked the question about the equipment. That's usually what they do with it the next year is they spend it. Um, it's, uh, you know, we've had an interesting weather year out here. Uh, we've had a lot of snow. Uh, and so any sign of, you know, any news of drought, signs of doubt, that seems to have gone away. Um, but w- when we look at uh, and your weather cycle that actually hits this year, which suggests that the drought that we had in um, California and in the Southwest will continue to, despite what we've seen, you know, with, with the storms and the weather and the rains and all of that, it's going to continue to move to the east into the Midwest beginning this year. And, you know, a lot of these guys that I talked to, the farmers aren't aware of this. They, in fact, the last time it really happened was the Dust Bowl years. Now, there were, there were other things about the Dust Bowl that we don't have today. You know, we, didn't, we didn't have all the... Uh, the irrigation, the, you know, the technology that we have, the, the attention we pay to soil, for instance, all of that. But uh, weather is something that was the overriding factor in all of that. And I, I think this is really worth, worth watching. Um, there's a guy named Sean Hackett who writes a very good uh, weather report um, that one of our colleagues watches. And this is what he's saying is this is this could be the year when the drought really intensifies right now. If I looked outside, George, I got a, I got a pile of snow out in front of my office here. That's about 15 feet high. Nobody would convince me there's a drought around the corner, but that's All exactly right. when you want to start looking. <laughs> All right, let's move along here. Let's go to Nostradamus and Michael Nostradamus. Please. Uh, hey, George, um, Larry, I, I like what I'm hearing. Um, a lot of what you're saying um, is, uh, is what I think myself. I've received a lot of flack, 
for calling for the uh, 10 year to go above 10% and so on and so forth. Um, uh, I just noticed you, you work with um, Simon Hunt. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think the only thing we actually disagree on might be the timeline, which I think a lot of this plays out um, this year in 2023, not so much in the um, next two or three years, but you might actually be end up, end up being right on that. Uh, I have the tendency to be uh, a little early. So I actually do have a um, couple of questions that I've been thinking about, um, mostly geopolitical, but I think I want to wait until the end because I believe this is just the intermission and you might touch on it. So I don't want to ask you a question that you might end up answering anyway. Uh, Nostradamus, I would, I would go for it because I, I, uh, um, this, is, this is an appropriate time. So, so have at it. Uh, okay. Um, my question is uh, Iran-related and... Um, the last couple of days, the news came out that the Russians are selling them uh, Su-35s. And then today came out that uh, they're seeking to receive some uh, S-400s, uh, which are the Samsung systems. So, so my question is, um, obviously, Iran is, uh, is preparing for, for something. And you've, you also touched upon on the 84% enrichment in the uh, nuclear uh, feasible material and their um, pretty close to a bomb, whether they have the capability to actually make it. Um, some U.S. officials were saying 12 days. Um, they came out later that said they can make five to seven bombs in the next month or so. So they're obviously preparing to do something. Uh, and Iran itself is also uh, arming itself. So what do you think um, happens in the next, uh, let's say, uh, six, uh, six to 12 months in, in, in Iran? I think we may have lost Larry. Larry, are you there? Huh. Yeah, I, I don't see him on the on the panel. I don't know where he went. Hopefully he'll come back. Oh well. Just hold that. Hopefully hopefully he'll come back. Um Oh here, did you have a follow up while we're waiting for Larry to come back? For now. Yeah, I was just going to ask Larry about his, you know, he spoke a little bit about energy, just kind of his thoughts on um, if he's looked at like offshore uh, versus onshore, what his thoughts were basically on on that offshore space. <clears throat> so if he comes back, maybe you can ask him. Um, I'd be curious to see what, what his thoughts are on that, just with relation, because, you know, I, I think that's uh, a very kind of overlooked space. Even now, um, we're starting to see a little bit, kind of a little bit of thawing in that area. Um in the last few months, but there's so much potential in offshore. Really, you know what what happened, and as you know, during the um, uh, in in 2010, we had that uh, Deepwater Horizon, which basically shut down the Gulf for years afterwards, and a lot of people had a bad taste in their mouth for offshore uh, drilling. And so, you know that and that coupled with that ESG movement, which is what you know really ramped the uh, you know car company that shall not be named. Um, the poster child for ESG and, you know, it kind of in my mind, um, now we're starting to see a thaw. So I think, you know, I just wanted to see his thoughts. Maybe he's done it some work on, on that space. <clears throat> We've certainly done a lot of work and we like it. I just wanted to see what, what his thoughts were on that. So maybe if he comes no, back, I, you I, can ask him. I, I share your optimism. Are there any, any particular names you, you care to talk about or would you rather not get into well, individual I, I, I names? Well, I've posted some of the names, you know, from time to time. Um, I, there's not many, right? I mean, there's just a handful of names in the offshore space anymore. So, I mean, a, a company that's done really, really well um, over the last few months is Tidewater. 
um, you right. know, and that's uh, that's a name that we've owned for quite a while. And, you know, um, obviously we've talked about Transocean and, and, and others, but um, this is a space that I think has kind of been overlooked by institutions for a very long time. If you take a look at the passive space, the eat passive, this is, again, going back to something we talked about many times, which is passive versus active with passive. These passive funds, they don't discriminate. They just buy whatever's been working. So, what, what, you know, when, when they go and get a new allocation of money and it's just they put the money into the same stuff they already own, there's really no kind of effort into identifying, you know, overbought or over or, or under, you know, overbought or underbought, right? Overvalued or undervalued stocks. They just kind of whatever's been working, that's where they put the money. And so the, these in, most of these, uh, you know, products, these ETFs have become very top heavy, as we've talked about, and that's starting to change now. So I think eventually that dispersion underneath the big indices is going you know, which is taking place now i think it's going to continue and you're going to start to see a lot more interest in in some of these kind of um areas that have been overlooked for many 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 years you know so i'm just you know he's he, he's he's been around a long time so i'm just curious what his thoughts were on that larry's been, back he's back where'd he go is he here he's a speaker larry, larry. I'm here. there you go sorry <laughs> What did your phone no. die? Uh, I don't know what happened. <laughs> just just, just disappeared. There you go. So so here was starting to ask questions about um, the relative attractiveness of perhaps the uh, offshore uh, the service companies, the offshore companies, as opposed to the energy companies themselves. If I got the question right, do you have any thoughts about the uh, offshore companies and service companies, Larry? No, I'll take a look. But I, I haven't looked at the offshore companies for quite a while, so I'd have to I'd have to renew my information on those that actually is the right answer that's the that's the answer i was looking for actually larry because i as i just mentioned to george this has been an overlooked space um for a very long time so the fact that you haven't really looked at it is not surprising i mean many people we talk to in this business uh, i'm just shocked at how how few people are actually either invested or even thought about investing in the space so um it that doesn't surprise me at all one bit um I mean, this was a big, you know, as I mentioned to George, you know, this kind of thing died about 12 years ago after Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf. And uh, once they shut the Gulf down, the, all the money just kind of, flew, you know, came out of the whole space. And a lot of these companies were just on life support for many years. And then, you, of course, you had the ESG craze and that didn't help them either. So I think it's starting to kind of, um, you know, uh, I think it's starting to kind of come back into vogue. A little bit, you know. I think we're going to see a lot more over the next couple of years. E, the e, you know, we have a few uh, Canadian oil mafia guys in here. These oil guys from Canada, and uh, I spent a quite quite a bit of time with them on Spaces and on, on Twitter. And you know, the easy oil, the cheap oil, has been found. It's really now uh, the big reserves, the long term reserves are offshore, and unfortunately, they require a lot of investment. And these, you know, these companies, I think, are very well positioned going forward in that regard. Great. All right, let's move ahead. Thanks for that, O'Hare. Uh, let's go to Michael and then Arthur. Hey, Michael, good to see you. Please unmute yourself. I was just remarking that, you know, over the last several weeks, I've noticed even on down days, uh, traditionally defensive sectors like healthcare, utilities, and staples, or more, we'll call them value names, have, have been struggling immensely. And, and even, even versus growth and high beta. So, you know, I, I've remarked that, you know, hey, well, while, while we're positioning more defensively in cash, we're getting 5% plus, so maybe that's part of it. But I'm just wondering if, if we're seeing a bit of a regime, a regime change here. And, uh, you know, as we, as, as we 
move through the cycle and you know maybe people are looking at at other other ways to to secure yield and maybe moving away from those more traditional defensive areas thanks so you're looking at defensive stocks is that right arthur or that's what you're thinking they're moving away from yeah well, well yeah. i i just i guess i've been noticing that you know on yeah. down days you know you typically see bids coming in for for staples healthcare utilities and I, and i'm not noticing that outperformance in fact mm-hmm. even on down days recently they they they've been lagging and yeah. and like healthcare as an example i think this will be the 10th week in a row that it's uh-huh. it's going to close lower yeah interesting now i one of the things we are hearing from uh clients especially multi-asset uh clients is they're buying t-bills and they're buying very short duration this is the first time i've heard this in a long time i mean i've actually had people quote me i'm fine with having a five percent uh one-year t-bill now they're just going to put it away so that's my answer i think is they're looking i mean that's almost max protection right (laughs) if you can't go short and you can't you can't hedge that's what you do um so that that'd be my explanation for it. Yeah, there's still there's you know another thing that strikes me about your comment, which I've been thinking about, is are we at the point where everything goes down? You know, there is no there is no place to hide. You know, I, I you know, guys, I I would say this, uh, Arthur. Your question is: uh, Are you talking about when you say it's been going down for ten weeks or whatever? Are you looking at the index uh, itself? Is that what you're referring? To? I, I'm looking at. I'm looking at the sec. I'm looking at the the, the spider sectors, right? So I mean, yeah. you can drill down. We we know we know we know the names that are driving it. It's the largest cap names. Yeah. So what I was yeah. gonna say, exactly. That's my. So what I was gonna say is, if you look underneath those indices, if you even if you take the subsectors and you look at those ETFs, for instance, or those indices. Uh, there's a lot of dispersion underneath. So, you know, you want to own the names. They're kind of like, I would say, towards the lower to middle part of the, those indices, not the ones at the top, because I think there's a lot of rotation happening within those indices. I, I, I would agree. And, and what, what we're starting to see is is some outperformance in the small to mid cap space. Exactly. So That's right. I have been noticing right. that. Yes. Th- th- thanks for that. Um, let's go now to uh, Michael Cantritz. Cantritz, good to see you. What's on your mind? Hey, George. Uh, I was just going to add, add uh, to my two cents to the, to the question that Arthur had regarding defense. Um, I think, you know, that with there's there's definitely a lot of idiosyncratic things going on. A lot of the grocer people are fearful about owning grocers with the food stamps getting removed. Um, you know, some of the government stimulus uh, Neil least talked about for a while. Uh, totally agree with O'Hare on the valuation stuff. Um, and I would also look at credit spreads. You know, we have not really seen much of a widening of spreads, um, even though the broader markets, you know, have had a, had a tough February. And spreads typically correlate really well with the relative performance of those defensive groups. Um, that's, and then the third point would be kind of echoing your last point about small and mid caps. We've definitely seen high beta underperform low beta in a sector neutral perspective so there's definitely you know with the markets down from 4200 there's definitely been some move away from cool off in beta and some rotation into lower beta but i think you know some of these other issues that you guys are all highlighting are masking that somewhat at the broader capitalization weighted sectors uh, those three specifically 
So, yeah, I think there's a lot going on, and I think we kind of touched on a lot of them. What do you make, uh, Cantro, of the, uh, the mean reversion, the, the reversal? A lot of the high beta garbage that got trashed last year's had a you know, had a pretty strong start to the year. I think it's given up the ghost in some, some of it lately. But what's what's your take on that? I mean, if, you, if you look at, you know, how a lot of those stocks have done, tech's doing well, advanced decline line is positive, blah, 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 blah. What is it, what, how does that speak to you? Well, that, that stuff didn't really participate much in the end of the year. The market rallied. Uh, higher beta really only kicked in literally at the start of the year and ran up. I think the S&P high beta index was up 26% at, at one point in the middle of February. And that's come off a, a good deal in the last three weeks, two weeks. Um, so I think people, I don't know where it was, tax loss selling, you know, from some of the biggest losers. And we're just waiting to jump back in. Uh, the beginning of the year. And, you know, I think the markets, you know, during that time we had the narrative of recession fears going away to soft landing to no landing. And, you know, I think equities have gotten ahead of themselves, you know, those, those specifically, but, you know, you, you've seen this a million times where stocks that go down a lot, bounce a lot. Um, that's just the, the nature of uh, investor behavior. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I view it. I don't think it's any, any of it sustainable. Thanks for that. Much appreciated. Um, all right, let's go back now to uh, Baron. You had a follow-up? I do, but I don't want to uh, distract from the, the trade uh, conversation. If you want to come back to me later on, mine is around, uh, for Larry, around cyber and yeah. some events yeah. that I yeah. that, yeah. Will, that will tie into the market, but yeah. it will tie into the market. Yeah, Baron, let's, let's leave that one for right now, if you don't mind. I think your instincts are correct on that. Boris, good to see you, my friend. What's up? Please unmute yourself, Boris. Boris, can you hear us? Please unmute yourself. Boris? Can you hear me now? Yeah, we got you. Yeah, Go thank ahead. Thank you so much. Hi, Larry. Uh, it was a long time ago, but we met in Zurich at that uh, institute that you have been working with, and uh, I've been working in the same company. I recall in the 70s when I started in the business that the banks at that time, especially in Switzerland, they also had an asset allocation that had assets in gold. I think it was 5% that was recommended that investors would have in gold in the private bank. Do you think that is possible? That's the first question. And the second question is, I think FDR in 1933, and I think it was actually in March 1933, he forbid that it was possible for citizens to own gold. Do you think that would be possible if you have a rise in gold the way that you see it? Uh, <laughs> you didn't give me the easy ones, Urs. Um, this is the reason why I like miners, the, the, in answer to your second question, because the thing they did not seize in 1933 was the mines. So homestake mining out in South Dakota, dome mines, these were these were public companies, um, and that was the best way to actually own gold at the time was the producers, and I could see that happening again if they were to try and uh, confiscate gold. But I think the only reason they would now is if it became a substitute for the dollar, which I don't think it really can, but it can dent the dollar. So, I you know they've spent years and years and years here trying to discredit the dollar, or, uh, excuse me, uh, gold, and uh, you know I think they've done a fairly good job of it. So. 
I don't think they will try and confiscate those kind of medals, although um, my grandfather lost uh, a pretty good sum in, in that event that you mentioned in 1933. And, and in regard to your first question, I think I missed the last couple of years. Could, could you repeat, please? Yeah, yeah so when I was uh, working in Switzerland, you know, that's where I started my career. And I started on actually April 2nd, 1973, uh, on a Monday. And uh, I remember actually there were two big moves in gold. Uh, I, I think one was in 74-ish or something along these lines, but then the really huge one, that was, I think, in 1979, if I'm not mistaken. And I recall that because we had customers coming in and they were buying gold. I mean, I remember one client that came in and he bought gold bars and put them in a, in a brown bag. And it was just, it was just crazy. And, and yeah. actually calling up uh, the gold dealers in, in Zurich at that time, mm -hmm. you know, until you got even through that you could talk to a, a trader to buy gold. Yep. That by itself was difficult. And the other thing was gold was jumping at that time also in dollars. I mean, it was, and, and I remember, you know, we were buying Krugerrands at that time, and it, it was just crazy. Uh, and I was actually also working in the vault and, you know, moving gold from one area to another. It was just nuts. Uh, the bottom line is that at that time, because of safety reasons and because of the crisis that were, was going on there, I think it was... Uh, Iran is the hostage crisis and stuff like that. There was a recommendation that you would keep 5% of your assets in gold. You know, mm -hmm. you diversified into gold, in equities, in fixed income, and just to be sure you would have 5% in gold. Yes. And do you think it's possible that would come again that, you know, instead of just talking about a 60-40 portfolio that you would all of a sudden have, like, you know, a 5% allocation into gold just because for safety reasons. Yeah, thank, yeah, I understand your question now. Thanks, Urs. Um, well, we still have a number of clients still in Switzerland and in Zurich. And uh, uh, one of the things I've noticed the last couple of years is one, one particular, which has a long history of owning gold for their private clients. Uh, most of the clients came out of the Middle East. Um, uh, they, they were a specific group of people and uh, they, they had historically, uh, all the way from, you know, the times they were in Iran or Iraq or whatever country they were in, Lebanon, uh, they would own gold. <clears throat> that bank, about two years ago, decided that they didn't, they didn't need gold anymore. And I was absolutely shocked because they, and they did it, at, at, uh, unfortunately, at, a, at, a, at the wrong price. But yes, I think that is going to come back. And, and one of the reasons I think it will is the alternatives are, are not, they're not going to be that um, attractive uh, and they won't have the history. And I think that's really the problem with cryptos. When I talk to these kind of banks about cryptos, they just shake their heads. Some, some are be involved, but I, I, for gold, I think, especially for the older generation, it's interesting too. You can kind of break it down by ages. The people who are sort of 50, 60 and older will buy gold. The people who are, you know, the kids who are, I call them kids, they're less than 40, they will be much more willing to own crypto, but I, I, I think the constituency is still there, and I think those banks will, in the end, uh, start to bring their allocations back up. And also, at that time, I remember the other big trade that really was absolutely going nuts 
was uh, when Nelson Bunker Hunt bought silver. Do you believe that if gold is going up, it also would mean the same for silver and platinum? That the government would do the same thing? No, that uh, if gold were to move for whatever reason, mm-hmm. that also silver and, gold and, and platinum would have a similar move that they mm-hmm. also would move up in addition to gold. Yeah, platinum, I don't follow that closely. I don't know. But silver, I know, is in very short supply um, in the warehouses. And, and there have been, I think, several instances where the COMEX had to pay cash to settle contracts because the deliveries couldn't be made. Um, that's quite possible. I think you could have another. That was a special case, to be fair. I mean, the, 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 they intended to corner the market. This time, I think it, it would be more of a system failure. Um, which I think could be, I mean, that could be even more pronounced in my view. And that's a greater risk than, uh, because the government knew about the risk, you know, in terms of what Hunt was doing and they managed it down. This next time, I think if it's just an inability to provide physical silver and and the uh, side holding the delivery contract just refuses to take fiat money, cash, then they really got a problem. Hey, Larry, uh, one thing we have something we haven't talked to much at all, um, and that's Europe. Um, it's rare anyone has anything good to say about Europe. We all know the reasons why. Um, you know, a few months back before the warm winter, situation looked incredibly dire. Mother Nature um, helped out with that. We avoided a sidestep of disaster. Um, you're in Europe quite frequently. I'm just curious what thoughts you have about the European investment picture. Well, they're cheap. Um, we put an allocation in Europe in about November. And I, I think I made a mistake because I've written, I took it out in, I think it was early February. We, we made, I don't know, 15, 20% um, in a very short period of time. And that was a general market allocation. But we also put some money in the European banks, which have done nothing but go down for 10 years. And I've actually put that portion of the allocation back in. And the reason is primarily that they also have a yield curve, just like the Japanese banks do. And and they're if you believe the book values, they're unbelievably cheap. They're you know, some of them are trading at half a book and single digit PEs, and they have good sized dividend yields, so they have a constituency to buy the stocks in Europe. Um, the dividend yields on those stocks are actually larger in many cases than it is to buy a government bond. So I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's interesting, too, just to, to, to um, transition to just real another line of thought here. We were talking to a German bank the other day, actually it was on Monday, and we asked them uh, uh, where they were going to get their gas, their nat gas. Uh, and, and they had commented that the weather had been much better than expected, and they really got through the winter, as you said, with, you know, much better than anyone thought they would. And I said, well, where are you going to get your natural gas for next year? And they said, oh, that's no problem. We're still buying 20 to 25 percent of it from the Russians. <laughs> and I, just, I, I stopped for a minute because I, I, I just thought, now, how, is, how does that work? And I asked them and they, they didn't seem too uh, interested in telling me how this was occurring. But they also said that the um, I asked them about the capacity buildup to take LNG or FSRUs into Germany and and catch more capacity coming out of uh, Texas, for instance. And they said, this was their quote, they said, uh, we're moving at turbo speed to be able to do that. So I think, and they, they, this was their view, was they, they said they thought by next year they'd be in much better shape. Um, again, I'm not, 
I'm not touting or pushing anything, but I just, you know, in looking backwards in terms of that supply chain, there's a lot of gas that's backing right up into Chenier Energy, and they're getting 20-year contracts to uh, deliver that gas into into Europe. And I think that's, you know, if he, he, the other thing they said to me was, well, we got a you got a real ball of worry to uh, deal with here, don't you? You got a war, but you're telling us the stocks are cheap, and what should we do? <laughs> and uh, it's fair comment, but I I just think, and, and nobody's there. That's that's the other thing. I mean, we get no questions about Japan. We get no, almost no questions about Europe from other parts of the world. It's it's like it's fallen off the investment cliff. So unless the war gets out of hand, my guess is those those markets are are too cheap. Makes sense. All right. So we have the they have the invasion of the Minnesotans. Um, Neely, good to see you. How are you? Neely? Hey, George. I'm well. How are you? Good. You you guys do Neely and Larry. Do you two know? <laughs> No, Larry, like personally, but it's a small town. I was looking at your um, profile. I mean, obviously we've got common friends, but I was like, I don't, I need to meet Larry. Well, it's a small town. (laughs) I know, exactly. I mean, I was just, you know, I see that you've taught, you know, some of the local colleges. I teach North Central downtown. Um, Ah. I was at Piper for 15 years. I mean, we invariably have crossed paths somewhere. We just didn't know it. Well, we'll have to try and meet up and tell stories. So, so Neely is our resident uh, expert on all things consumer. Uh, what wisdom do you bring us, Neely? You know, George, I just came off of, um, we were with clients yesterday at their annual meeting and presenting our view on the consumer economy for this year. And really, uh, the message is pretty simple. And I did a, a fairly long tweet thread. I'll put it up in the nest, which is getting some good um, response today. But it's just a cogent way of saying buckle up buttercups because you got, you know, highs, you've got lows around the corner. I've never seen six different economic realities over the course of eight months. And that's basically what we're going to be experiencing, Um, you know, whether it's the cost of living increases for the consumer in January, which was phenomenal, clearly took up retail sales higher. It's been a robust tax refund uh, deployment here in the month of February. Um, refunds of, you know, a lot, of, there's some contention out there. Some people are like, average refunds down 11%. I'm like, well, we're issuing a lot more refunds. Okay. So uh, the total refund dollars, total dollars into the consumer's hands is actually up versus last year in February. So that's been robust as well. But, you know, I, Cantro mentioned it, you know, starting right now, the SNAP benefits go from a tailwind to a headwind by about $95 on average for about 40 million households. And um, at a time when food prices really haven't rolled over. Um, So this is something we're concerned about for at least some portion of the consumer. You roll right ahead into April um, and we've got um, most people we think for tax refund season will actually be uh, better off uh, this year versus last year. You know, we've mentioned about this W4 form thing, but there's one income demographic we think that's going to kind of have some wacky math working against them. And that's the 100 to 200K households that are married. Uh, we think that the, the W4 form was a little wacky. Uh, for that income demographic, and that's about 17 million households that might have a surprising tax bill or certainly a lower refund. So that could be um, uh, a little bit of a lull in April. May, of course, we're going to have the end of the federal pandemic health emergency, which 
you know, most states can stop paying their 17 million people for their Medicaid um, kind of assistance that they've been receiving through pandemic assistance broadly. Uh, does that mean, and this is the biggest question we have right now, does that mean we have, I don't know, millions of people coming off the sidelines looking for fuller time employment in the months of April and May? And does that take up unemployment rate higher temporarily, right? Does that take... Does that take labor force participation in an expansion mode? Like it's it's intriguing to us. Does does Powell get his technical signal right that things have been um, uh, the employ the labor markets are not as hot you know because of that one very specific issue? There's historical precedents for thinking when entitlements change, people show up. So, and all of that happens right before we get into the student loan dynamic. So student loan is still, we're still very much in team uncertainty. Uh, I actually did read through all 128 pages of the testimony earlier this week. I'm not a legal expert, but I can literally argue either side of how this ruling could go. So I don't know. That's where we're at, but I'll put the, I'll put the tweet thread in the. Sounds like a lot of confusion. It is. Yeah. Fair enough. Thanks for that, Neely. David, uh, welcome. Good to see you. You have a question for Larry, David? Uh, yes, I do. I guess I do. Thank you very much, George, for having me up. Uh, Larry, you brought up a fairly significant historical analogy, being that of Carthage. And when we're looking at the Punic Wars, the arising of the Roman Empire in this analogy, I was curious, where are the sanctions going to come in historically right now? Because much like Sicily in the, in, in the first Punic Wars, we can see that the, the Roman dominance is going to occur. And who are the, uh, partition, uh, the, the, the main practitioners within both fractions who's roman your idea and who's carthage obviously we would assume us would be carthage and who would be the up-and-coming empire ha! david we better have lunch <laughs> it could be a lot of fun yeah let's let's yeah um larry um we've been going at this for almost an hour and a half now so we, we don't want to keep you uh we don't want to keep you too long um let's bring it back to markets so putting this all together um a lot of black swans a lot of risks um, sounds like even without black swans, you expect multiples to compress if I understand you correctly. Um, yeah. so I'm not going to hold you to it, but do you think markets are higher or lower flat over the next year or just don't even want to hazard a guess? Lower this year, uh, we'll, we'll end up negative. So we'll have two down years, which is unusual. The reason, it, well, it may be. One of the basic reasons is, I, I, well, you know, I worked for Luthold for a number of years in the 80s. And just as I was joining him uh, in the early 80s, Steve had written a couple of books, a couple of versions of the same book, actually, called The Myths of Inflation and Investing. And uh, the second one, I helped put some of the tables together, but the book was all his, and I, I have it right in front of me right here. So this, this traced from 18, I think, 86 to 1980, which was the end of the inflation era, what PEs traded at under different inflation scenarios. Well, if I'm right, and we're between a 4 to 6% inflation rate, according to this data, the PE ought to be between about 13 and 14 times, not 19. So when I see the long bond beginning to sell off now, is it the really long bond, the 30-year? Um, it looks to be like inflation expectations are starting to build into the market. And you you hit it. I mean, it's PE compression. I think that's going to be the real problem uh, in terms of fundamentals. Right. And it's a sidebar, but it's it sounds almost secondary to what you're saying. Do, uh, do you expect a recession in the U.S. this year? No, I don't. I think it's next year. Got it. 
So that'll help uh, fuel the inflationary uh, problem that uh, you think we're, having, we're going to have in this country. We'll go away. That's great. Um, all right. Well, we bat for an hour and a half. Larry, I want to thank you. And, and again, if anyone's interested, uh, you can, uh, Larry, what's the best way to find you? Of course you're on Twitter, but your, uh, your, your website is what TIS group. Um, what, what, what's your webpage? Yeah, it is. You can either hit TIS group or just uh, directly email me at larry.jedlow at tisgroup.net. And if David is still listening, I'd, I'd love to talk to him about who Carthage is, but probably better we do it one-on-one. That's great. That's great. Well, Larry, I want to thank you on behalf of everyone. This has been fantastic. Hopefully you'll come again, come back again before too long. And um, we all learned a lot. So thank you again, Larry. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, George. Take, Take care. care. Good, night. Good night, everyone. Take care.